name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God, our Father, you will all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Send workers into your great harvest, that the gospel may be preached to every creature, and your church gathered together by the word of life and strengthened by the power of the sacraments. May advance in the way of salvation and love through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Now, the advertisement that we'd put in the bulletin that people, I don't think, read anyway, um, has said we were going to talk about two councils and the list we had skipped, Second Constantinople, and the orderly OCD side of me couldn't skip one of the first seven. So instead, what we're going to end up doing is three tonight, but the first two will be very condensed. And that's the thing about actually some of these ecumenical councils is they, the documents that they produce are not that long. Um, one of the ecumenical councils that we talked about, um, second no, sorry, the first council of Constantinople, we actually don't even have a single document that survived from that council. And part of the reason why they're not that long is when they meet, they meet for only, some of them, one to two days. And you compare this to Vatican II, and they meet for years. The Council of Trent, where they meet three different times, over 17 years, and they produce a whole lot of writing that these councils were called for very specific circumstances, very specific instances, and they the actual amount of stuff that they end up writing, some of them, is one to five pages. Um, it's not that much, and it's only over a series of couple days. A couple of other key themes, and this is one that we pointed out last week. Um, I believe it was last week. It might have been the week before when we were talking about that theme of Constantinople versus Alexandria. That That's another thing is that in the first thousand years of the church, there is not a single ecumenical council that is called in response to anything that is not a problem that takes place in either Constantinople or Alexandria. Um, that's another interesting uh, point, that the first thousand years of the church, every single issue that is dealt with is either something local in Constantinople or something in Alexandria, that it, it ends up spreading more in different places, but there's actually not a single controversy that, is, that calls for an ecumenical council in the West for the first thousand years of the church. Um, and... I mean, interestingly on that note, too, that there's a, I had mentioned this before last week, but that in the 2,000 years of church history, the, if you look at the number of years that the Archbishop of Constantinople has been in communion with Rome, it's in the low 300s. Um, I can't remember wh exactly which number. That, that, there's, that was just a lot of political stuff going on. And I think what really can be laid at the root of so much of this, and we'll really see this today, is that idea of Caesar or papism that really is going to, um, I guess, is describe the nature, color the nature of the relationship of the church and the state in the East. And what is, it is what causes so many problems. That the idea of the, the, of the emperor directly getting involved in the religious affairs in the East is in many ways why you is responsible for why there are so many issues that have to be dealt with at ecumenical councils 
for the first thousand years, and they're happening in the East, because the East is where the emperor is, and thus, that's where the problems are taking place, because he's the one that's getting directly involved, and as we'll see, the, the emperor is oftentimes no theologian, and is oftentimes messing things up. And likewise, because the emperor is so directly involved that things often only get fixed in the East when you have a good emperor, but the number of good emperors compared to incompetent emperors is actually pretty minuscule. If you're going to tip the scales, the incompetence um, far outweigh the good emperors. So that's an interesting thing. And then the other main thing, too, about the first six ecumenical councils, the seventh will be the first one that actually deals with a different issue, that the first six all have to do with Christological issues. And just hammering out that one point of Jesus Christ being one person with two natures, the hypostatic union as set forth by Leo the Great. And this is, I mean, if you want one of the great arguments against Sola Scriptura, that the first six ecumenical councils of the church, going all the way through 680, are simply trying to hammer out that one issue after Christological misunderstanding, after Christological misunderstanding of people that loved the Bible. A lot of these heretics were very sincere. They thought they were very orthodox. They thought that their position was the one laid forth in Scripture because nowhere in the Bible does it say Christ is one person but with two full natures um, and explain what that actually means, both divine and human. It does not say that in those terms. And so actually hammering that out, it takes 600 plus years. Now, so to get through these three councils, that what we ended with last week when we went through Ephesus and Chalcedon, or Chalcedon, that, um, that these were dealing with the dual um, ends of the same sort of issue of the hypostatic union that we remember we were talking about with heresies that people love to swing from one extreme to the other extreme. So the big one at Ephesus, remember you had St. Cyril who was arguing against Nestorius and Nestorius is trying to argue that, well, Christ is two different persons. There's a divine person and a human person. So Cyril argues against him and says, no, Christ is one person. And that's what the Council of Ephesus met and about was the idea that Christ is one person. And if you remember the language that he used, he said that Christ is one physis. He's one person. And then you had, after that, the ignorant monk, Eutyches over in Constantinople, who started to argue, yeah, Cyril's right. Christ is one physis, meaning one nature, because he misunderstood what physis meant, and he started the new heresy that Christ is one nature, which we call um, monophysitism, the monophysites are the ones that believe this, that he's one nature. And once again, the church had to address this and say, no, you're misunderstanding. He is one person but two full natures, both fully human and fully divine. Now, so we ended last week with sort of a sense of triumph that the Eastern Emperor came to the aid of Pope Leo the Great, and Orthodoxy won out, hurrah. But as with all of these councils, just because the council says it doesn't mean that anybody actually listens to it. So... 
just like the Council of Nicaea condemned the heresy of Arianism, that Arianism was a major problem for another couple hundred years. Likewise, the Council of Chalcedon, it condemned the Monophysite heresy, the idea that Christ is only one nature. But the result of that wasn't that all of the Eastern Christians, um, in particular Alexandria, because it was the Bishop of Alexandria, Dioscoros, that was going around and really preaching this heresy, and he thought he was right. He thought that he was like that ignorant monk defending the position of St. Cyril, that he was the true defender of orthodoxy. But it wasn't like the people of Egypt in Alexandria just because the ecumenical council said, hey, you're wrong, your bishop, bishop Dioscoros is a heretic, that the people all just said, oh, okay, we agree, that's okay. Um, so instead what happened was the entire churches of Antioch, which remember, this is one of the large patriarchates of the East, um, Antioch and Alexandria, two of the top four biggest bishops in the world, they took their entire churches into schism. The, that the Monophysite heresy just absolutely took off. And I mean, it was, you had, when the Pope tried to appoint a new bishop who was not a Monophysite down in Alexandria, the people dragged him out in the streets and murdered him. Um, that they, and they forcibly, through riots and everything, refused to accept what the Council of Chalcedon said. And the reason why was that they thought that the Council of Chalcedon was teaching Nestorianism, that they thought that by trying to argue that Christ is two natures, that's somehow saying there's two different Christs. And they, in many ways, were very sincere, but they were wrong. And so the mess of the Monophysite heresy continued. You had two main bishoprics that were just an open schism throughout the 500s. Does that make sense so far? All right. Now, the problem that comes about, too, at this time was you get a new emperor, because when I talk about this problem of Caesaropapism, the, the emperor getting involved, that all three of these ecumenical councils, that's going to be part of the problem, is the emperor. That what happened in the 500s is that there's a new emperor in the east, Justinian. And Justinian was a very capable emperor, and he went around about trying to restore the glory of the Roman Empire. And so what he's most renowned for is reconquering all of the lands, or most of the lands, that the Roman Empire had lost. Um, so you had had those Germanic tribes that had come in and conquered a lot of the West, and he's going to actively work at reconquering them. So, he, so one main thing that's going on during his reign is what are called the Gothic Wars. Everyone knows the Goths, the Visigoths that came down and took over Italy. Well, Justinian launched a giant war to reconquer Italy from the Goths. And it turned into this multi-decade war of attrition across Italy of the Goths versus the Byzantines. And the end result is it left Italy as a wasteland. It demolished Rome. It destroyed the aqueducts. It left Italy a mess. And there's actually going to be two results of that, is that one result is 
that when the Pope finally is able to come back to Rome, he's going to end up becoming the temporal ruler because there's nobody left to take care of the hungry and the sick. The Pope's going to have to do it because Italy's a mess. But one result of it was with Justinian was that while the war was raging on, the Pope actually had to flee Italy and went and lived in Constantinople for a while. So the Pope's living in Constantinople. Now, Justinian, when he's trying to reconquer, he's trying to reunite, that one of the main problems that he faces is open rebellion from all of these monophysite areas. You have Egypt in open rebellion against him. You have Syria in open rebellion against him. And these places are a big deal. It's the most populated places in the entire world are Asia Minor, number one, but after that, Egypt and Syria. That actually the second largest city in the Roman Empire was Antioch. It was a big deal as opposed to, I mean, nowadays we don't tend to think of that, but Egypt especially, that was the breadbasket of the empire. You don't want Egypt in open rebellion because they produce all the food. Um, so he's really interested in trying to bridge the gap with the Monophysites because he, for the sake of his empire, he wants to bring the heretics back into the fold. So um, what he did was he said, you know what, the Council of Chalcedon was good, it, it explained a lot of stuff, but it didn't explain clearly enough in, in, in pre, as precise of terms as, necess, as needed why the Monophysite heresy is uh, wrong and why that's not what St. Cyril was actually saying. That, if you remember the Council of Chalcedon, more or less just adopted the Tome of Leo where he says, you know what, stop arguing about it. Christ is just one person, two natures, I'm the Pope, and you're going to listen. But they didn't get into a deep philosophical trying to explain it out. So what happened was Justinian said, all right, let's have a new council to try to explain it a little bit better with the hopes of bringing back the Monophysites. And that is what the Second Council of Constantinople is. Um, an interesting side note about it is that the history of these ecumenical councils is sometimes a mess. And even when we list them, that there's actually a little bit, while most of the ecumenical councils, that we can 100% for sure say that was definitively an ecumenical council, and therefore we know it was a completely infallible. You know, when Father Newman in that first lecture was going through the different um, levels sort of infallibility, that there's a couple of these ecumenical councils that it's not 100% sure if it really was an ecumenical council. But the thing about each of them is that none of them teach anything that is not in complete accordance with what the church has always said. And so what makes this one slightly shady is that the Pope refused to go along with it because, not because of anything they were actually saying. He wasn't upset at all with the documents that were being produced because they were perfectly fine. But the proceedings of how it was going forth was being sort of manipulated by the emperor so that the Pope said, you know what, I'm not going to participate. And what ended up happening was Justinian ends up throwing the Pope in prison and forcing him by threat to promulgate the documents of the council. So whether you want to count it necessarily as an ecumenical council, the, the Pope never later on went back, no Pope ever went back and said anything against the, the council, so it always gets counted. But 
coercion is usually not um, a good thing. Now, but once again, while Justinian, his plan, it might have worked in that the Monophysites might have been able to come back, except there's one problem that is going to stop them from ever coming back, and that was in the beginning of the 600s, the rise of Islam, that's going to spread across the Middle East and cut off the Monophysites from the Orthodox Christians. So that's why the Monophysite heresy is going to continue all the way until, I mean, the present day, that the Coptic Church is the inheritors of the Monophysites in Alexandria. And likewise, there are, um, Mon there are Orthodox Syrians, but there's also Monophysite Church of Syrians. Um, and actually, interestingly, was Justinian was trying to get them just to explain it better because he didn't think that they were really trying to be Monophysites. They just didn't understand that the Coptic Church actually has recanted of their Monophysite um, position when it was actually in eventually explained better, but it took around another 1,200 years. And so anyway, so that's what happens when the Arabs start to take over. Any questions about Second Constantinople before we move on to Third? Like I said, though, it didn't happen right away. It, it took um, some time, and I was getting actually a little bit ahead of myself talking about the Muslims and why they eventually don't come back, in that, so, Second Constantinople trying to bring them back. Now, it doesn't happen at first, and so around 100 years later, there's going to be another attempt to try to bring the Monophysites back. And this time, it's going to be another emperor interfering. And the reason why he wants to bring them back, because Justinian failed, is there's this new emperor named Heraclius. And Heraclius was engaged in this absolute knockout, dragout war with the Persians. That there was the, this, the Sassanid Empire over in Persia which had been the great enemies of the Romans for a thousand years, and neither one had really ever gained a foothold, that finally, in the 600s, they had this enormous war, per Byzantines versus Persians. And it got so bad that the, the Persians that came and they actually conquered Jerusalem, they went through and they were not Christians, they were Zoroastrians, and they were desecrating all the holy sites there. They stole the true cross. Heraclius in revenge at one point, he sailed his entire army across and ended up sacking the Persian capital of Tessaphon and burning it to the ground and recovering the true cross, that they had this huge war. And actually, the war is important in the history of Islam because it's going to be alongside with a huge plague that spreads across the Byzantine Empire. It's really what wears out both empires and makes them ripe for um, being conquered by the Muslims. But... The um, Heraclius, there you go, too many names on here. But Heraclius, he was trying to, in his war with the Persians, he wanted the help of the Monophysites, that they were in rebellion, they were not being much help in fighting against the Persians. And so he wa wanted to, once again, try to bridge the gap to bring them back. Um, and 
the heresy that becomes popular during his reign is something, it's not a real famous one that you don't hear a ton about, but it's called Mon, um, Manoth Elitism. I don't have any idea if I'm pronouncing that right. Manoth Elitism. And what this ar- tries to argue is it says, yeah, Christ has two natures, kind of, but he has only one will. Is it, it's kind of a compromise. Is we can say, okay, we'll say he has two natures and that he has a whole human body, but he has only one will. And so you can say he has two intellects as a part of it, but only one will. So it's like he has one and a half natures. Um, and this became pretty popular. They're just trying to use this as a way of keeping the, the monophysites happy. And um, Heraclius was not overly concerned in the theological matters. He just thought, hey, this is a good practical solution. So what he ended up doing was outlawed, he outlawed talking about the matter, talking about monothelitism, this heresy, in, in any shape or form. He's like, you can't give arguments for it, you can't give arguments against it, let's just accept it so that everybody can get along kumbaya. And there was a couple of saints that tried very hard to stand up against this. You had another pope who was in Constantinople, Pope St. Martin I, and he ended up getting exiled and actually dies um, as he, when he's exiled. You have Maximus the Confessor, one of the great mystic saints of the church, who ends up getting tortured to death. Um, and anyway, it's a, sort of a complete mess what's going on. And once again, it's just simply the emperor trying to interfere. Now, finally, though, it turns into such a mess that Heraclius, because the people, that this solution is not working, that he decides, you know what, we'll just have an ecumenical council to try to settle this problem again. And this, he, this time he thinks, you know, if we have an ecumenical council, he can tr- maybe try to manipulate it to the monothelitism position, but when they actually meet, they condemn it in no uncertain terms, and thus is monothelitism. And actually one of the great stories of the council is one of the monothelitist bishops um, at the end of it, he says, I can prove that my position's right by raising a dead body. So they actually bring in this dead body in there, and he does all these prayers and everything over the dead body to a pretty unclimactic finish as it just stays there on the table. And he goes, okay, maybe I'm not right. Um, so that was really the highlight of the, the third ecumenical council of Constantinople, the dead body that stayed dead. Um, now, one of the great ironies of history is with the Monophysites is that once they condemned this, that actually the emperors started an, an outright persecution of the Monophysites. And the, the great irony of this is, is that the Monophysites, they, they were causing lots of troubles, but they were the barrier, for the most part, that was keeping Islam in Arabia. And so what they ended up doing was destroying this Monophysite tribe that was actually right on the border of Arabia, and by doing so, it allowed the Muslims to spill forth into their empire. But anyway, so sometimes being practical and I guess letting the heretics live there is not necessarily a bad thing. Now, 
So, like I said, the monophysitism, it never dies out. The heresy, there are still monophysites around, but the, the, and the, the schism that's the result is still around to this day. The Coptics are still in schism. They still accept Dioscoros, that bishop who had started the monophysite heresy and had been deposed as a saint of their church. So, they're still around. Brings us to a whole new controversy. And the first one that is not going to have to do with strictly Christological matters. And once again, it's going to entirely lay at the feet of the emperor. And this time, it's an emperor who's going to do both good and bad. And this is Emperor Leo III. That Constantinople was in, in the beginning of the 700s, was in pretty dire straits. The Muslims had swept over the entire Middle East. They had taken over the entirety of Asia Minor and were all the way at the Bosporus Straits, the little strip of water that separates Europe from Asia. The, in the European side of his empire, or of the, of the Byzantine Empire, you had these other semi-barbaric tribes of the Bulgarians, etc., that were sweeping across and causing trouble over on that side. And to make matters worse, the emperors of the Byzantines were engaging in their favorite pastime through the history of the Byzantine Empire. The favorite pastime of the royals is to either blind and depose and exile each other or to kill each other, court intrigue in order to take over the empire. I mean, this is true of the Roman Empire going back to the first emperor. This, that is what they like to do. And you had had 20 different emperors in a 50-year period that Constantinople was not doing too hot. And so what happened was Leo III became the new emperor, and the way he did it was by killing the old emperor. But he's going to be the, actually the first competent emperor that they're going to have in a long time. And when he actually takes over, he takes over one month before the Muslims lay siege to Constantinople. And that the first year of his um, reign is trying to turn back the Muslim army of hundreds of thousands that are laying siege to Constantinople. They have a huge fleet and had the Golden Horn, the great the bay where the harbor of Constantinople is. They had that surrounded with their fleet. They had their army around, but. Constantinople, with its 50-foot-high walls and its cisterns underneath and its fire ships making raids out, is able to finally drive out the Muslims after a full year of siege. And actually, in doing so, Leo, in many ways, is considered one of the saviors of Europe because if Constantinople had fallen then, then there was no army that could have stopped them from sweeping across Europe. There was nobody in Europe that was really up to stopping them. You had the Franks going on over in France, but they were um, having enough difficulty with the Germans and trying to stop the Muslims from Spain. If you had the Muslims come from the other side too, that many consider, you know what, Europe would have become Muslim. So he's sometimes called one of the saviors of Europe. So that's the good side. And he quickly went around reconquering all sorts of land from the Muslims. He built up the armed forces again. The army loved him. He was a great strategic leader. 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Now, however, he quickly decided to get involved in church matters. And there was one issue that he got involved with. And this was, in many ways, sort of an influence of Islam. That in Islam, they have an absolute prohibition on images. We all know the stories of, I mean, the Prophet Muhammad cartoons, etc. That within Islam, it's not just drawing the Prophet Muhammad that's forbidden, but it's images of people, period. That's why they consider all such images idols. That they take the, the commandment against graven images in this very absolutist sense, which doesn't, if you actually read the Bible, doesn't make a lot of sense to take it in that sense, seeing that Moses, that God who had given this commandment had Moses raise up an image of a snake in order for the people to be healed. You had God telling him to build images of cherubim on the Ark of the Covenant, etc. But anyway, throw that out of context. Is well, nope, no graven images, period. That's why Islamic mosques, they just simply have weird geometric shapes because this absolute prohibition on images. Now, Leo thought whether he was influenced by the Muslims, and actually the Muslims were very actively trying to convert him, that he thought that the reason why the Christians were failing in their battles while the Muslims seemed to be on the ascendancy was because the Christians were superstitious and breaking the commandment against graven images. And in one thing in Leo's defense, there was a lot of abuses going on in the Byzantine Emperor, Empire at the time. Everybody knows of, as Catholics, we say, oh yeah, of course, we don't worship images. We venerate them. We, we all know the defense, but we also all know the different enthousi overly enthusiastic times within different Catholic cultures where they say, we say we don't worship the image, but it looks pretty close to it. Um, that, that it is, that superstition does have at times work its way into the Catholic practice of venerating images. And you know what? Of course that was going on in the Byzantine Empire at the time. But that is not going to excuse the extreme that Leo III is going to go to. That he's going to decide, you know what, all images of saints are, by their nature, idols. So actually, the very first thing he did was the, the, the palace of the emperors had a giant image of Christ over the gate coming in, so he took it down, and actually it led to huge riots all over Constantinople. But then he's going to go further... And he actually is going to bring together a false synod, uh, a synod of Eastern bishops who often, more often than not, just as when Henry VIII breaks from the Catholic Church in England, that the majority of the bishops have a, are weak, spineless fools that just go along because that's the easier thing to do. It was the same way with Leo. Um, and that he has a synod and, uh, of Eastern bishops, and he gets them to condemn the use of images at all times. And he actively started a persecution of, um, a persecution of anybody that was using images, icons, in churches. And this is what's called the iconoclast controversy, in that an iconoclast is simply called an image, means an image breaker, that 
that the iconoclast is the, the party of Leo that they're going to go and literally start breaking the churches, stripping the images off the walls and actively destroying them. They make it illegal even to have images for private devotion in your own home. And the, or the patriarch of Constantinople opposed this, and so Leo deposed him and exiled him. Um, now, the, so when Leo deposed and exiled the patriarch, that the pope at the time, who was this old guy named Gregory II, he, he just flatly refused to recognize the new patriarch. And actually, Gregory II, we can see timeline of the West, that Gregory I was Gregory the Great. So this is shortly after that. But Gregory II, he refused to recognize the new patriarch. And this really made, really made Leo mad. And so what Leo decided to do was he was going to invade Italy and punish the Pope. And actually, then Gregory II, who was an older man, he died, and you end up with a new pope, Gregory III, and he does so in even more extreme terms, and he sends letters to the East excommunicating anybody that dares to lay hand on an image and severing the, the communion of the patriarch of Constantinople, who is just the servant of Leo. And this is when the, the emperor decides, you know what, the invasion is coming. And so they put together a huge fleet to go invade Italy. And as it's coming to invade Italy, it gets hit by a storm and the entire thing sinks. Um, so it never actually gets there. Now, it's, Leo starts the iconoclast controversy, but it doesn't really get bad until his son takes over. That his son is the real scoundrel in the matter. That his son, Constantine V, actually, interestingly, Leo's um, son-in-law became emperor next, and Constantine V, who was a really nice guy, has his brother-in-law. Um, he has him publicly blinded and deposed, and then he and takes over the throne that way. And Constantine V, he's the one that is going to be the true, true iconoclast. And so what he did was there was an a new patriarch of Constantinople that this time was once again, and instead of just exiling him, he actually has him publicly deposed and then flogged to death um, in the public square. So you can imagine just literally beating the guy to death. Nice guy, just a nice thing to do to a bishop. Um, and he's the one that actively persecuted all of the monasteries of the East going through and he, would, he was mocking monks and everything left and right. He went into the monasteries, and he closed them down left and right, executed thousands of monks. He went, and he, they actively persecuted and made it a capital crime of treason to have images in your church, etc. That he, he had a little sort of reign of terror, Constantine V, um, all over iconoclasm. So... As what happens always when you have a policy of Caesaropapism, that the only thing that really can stop an emperor that is really evil is the greatest source of reform, oftentimes in the church, death. 
So even though Constantine got condemned by the West, the Pope has nothing he can do about it. And so finally, Constantine dies. And this time, you end up with another emperor, and you don't need to know his name, but his, his wife named Irene, so the easier name to remember, his wife Irene, was a good Orthodox Catholic. And when, he, when the, the emperor dies after only five years, Irene starts ruling things in the name of her five-year-old son. And so she's the one that went about the Empress Irene of overcoming the iconoclast controversy and trying to restore the proper veneration of images in the East. And she's the one that restored communion with Rome, and the reason, the way that they did that was she said, you know, this is not good that the Archbishop of Constantinople is a heretic. It's not good that they're all out of communion. And the only way that's going to heal this is through an ecumenical council. So she writes the Pope and asks his permission to have an ecumenical council. He agrees. And so they finally settle on the Second Council of Nicaea. Actually, interestingly, it was supposed to be the Fourth Council of Constantinople. But when they met, the army showed up who was loyal to those old emperors of Leo III and Constantine V and forcibly broke up the council. So they had to try again a, a year later, and that time they did it at Nicaea, so it became the Second Council of Nicaea. And it's a pretty simple council, but it simply goes through, and it condemns the iconoclast controversy. It simply goes through and gives a good theological outline of the difference between um, the, the worship that is due to God alone, called latria, and this is the, the word we use to the... The, the reverence, the worship that is reserved for the Holy Trinity alone, and it distinguishes this from dulia, which is the veneration that one gives to a saint or an image. And part of this is that tied up with the veneration of images is the veneration of saints. And part of that was Constantine. He had taken the iconoclast controversy so far as to forbid all prayer to saints, period. Not just the use of images, but you can't even pray to saints. So they are addressing this distinction that, no, this is right worship, and that we don't worship images, we venerate them, we give them high honor, we, we pray through them. We're not praying to the image that any fool can see. We're not praying to the image. We're praying to the saint, and we're using that as a, as a window in which to lift our minds and hearts towards that saint, that that's what they have to address. And what makes it key, though, is they also have a nice big section where they go through and they firmly, um, they firmly um, uphold the doctrine of papal supremacy. That's another key doctrine that they uphold at the council, even though the East is going to repudiate that, and around only a 200 years later, they utterly uphold the doctrine of papal supremacy at the council. Now, it's, like I said, it's a pretty short council, and what makes it interesting, though, is back to that idea of, was it a real ecumenical council? And part of this is that the pope, he said it was okay to call it. He set representatives to it, but he never actually ends up promulgating any of the documents from the council. So 
and I'll explain why in a second, but as a result of that, that it is theoretically possible that the church at some point in time could say, you know, that wasn't a real ecumenical council, but it doesn't ever, never said anything that the church doesn't wholly accept and hasn't accepted and said time and time again. Whether it was a real ecumenical council or not, ultimately doesn't matter. Um, it's not like it was saying something controversial. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. I mean, particularly, like, this is a big part of the Protestant Reformation was the iconoclasm, of, especially of the Calvinists. And it's simply, I mean, it's very similar to the Islamic view that this idea that it's impossible for somebody to have an image without somehow worshiping it. Um, I mean, and this is, uh, I mean, kind of a, a scandalous thing. I mean, you talk to a lot of Protestants and their view that, I mean, I'm not trying to say it's like, oh, it's overly bigoted, etc. but if you're a good, um, well-to-do Catholic that is a pretty reasonable person and you have a Protestant friend and you were to ask them, do you think I worship images? They would probably say, oh, no, no, we know that you um, the, uh, have the right theology, but all of those Latin Americans, they worship them all because they're dumb and they're superstitious. And because they, they still have this inherent sort of iconoclastic tendency that of assuming, rather the worst, assuming that people are superstitious because they're using images. Does that mean that they're not superstitious at times, different people? You know what? Sure. Like the Italians, I mean, if you see some of the festivals of throwing, sticking dollar bills and stuff, like, you know what? The, there might be a little superstition at that. But I also think the church has actually been one of the great, probably the greatest opponent of superstition for the last 2,000 years. That I mean, if, there, if you want superstition, that is the world until the Catholic Church comes and actually gives right reason and truth. Um, but also, I also say, you know what? Is superstition really the greatest sin? <laughs> um, an excess of enthusiasm. I'm sure God is a, a little forgiving. But, yeah. Oh, yeah, no, that's a great point. Yeah, that all the early churches that they found, they're all covered in images. Yeah. Bible stories were. So you, you know, you see these wrongs and you stop, you stop 
Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's not just the Protestant Reformation, too. I mean, this is a problem even in the church today. Um, I mean, when you look from the 60s on, the brutalist architecture, where it is very much that it is, um, well, it's architecture that instead of making you want to love God, it makes you want to hate God. Um, it is that it's, that it's architecture that kills faith within the heart. And, a, and the reason why it is, I mean, there's a lot of different reasons, but part of it is when you lose the idea of actually beauty, beauty having any sort of ob- objectivity, then you can start just doing whatever you want with it, and that's a whole other series of problems. But another one that's become very popular to this day, and this is actually one of the arguments that Leo tried to make and Constantine tried to make, and that is, why are you spending all of this money on images when you can be using it to feed the poor? Um, that was the big argument that they tried to use um, during the iconoclast controversy. And it's also important to remember, you know what, that is the exact same argument that Judas made. Um, that when, when that was a position in the gospel, that when she's using the expensive perfume for Christ's feet, and he's like, well, couldn't we have used this money to give it to the poor? Um, so anyway... But it's all because of the iconoclasm sort of come back again. Now, why the Pope never ends up promulgating it wasn't because he actually disagreed with anything, but because of an interesting political dimension that took place during this time. And that was, I mean, there's a whole lot that gets into to get into, but there was a new power in Western Europe that was coming up at this time, that if you remember when I talked about Justinian reconquering Italy, that that reconquering didn't last that long. That what happened was a new Germanic tribe came in called the Lombards. They were Aryan heretics, come back again. They were not very nice. They ended up kicking out the Byzantines pretty much almost entirely out of Italy. And when it came time for the Pope needing protection, he knew that the Byzantine emperor was not going to be much help. So instead, he turned to the new power, another Germanic tribe who had become good Orthodox Christians of the Franks. And that's when he went and had visited the King Pepin and asked for his help against the Lombards. And so at this time, at the time of this council, that there's a new Frankish king, Charlemagne, that, the, that is the new power in the West. And the Pope has, at this time, accepted Charlemagne as his protector. And Charlemagne, likewise, has given obedience to the church. He gave to the Pope the entirety of central Italy um, as the, the papal states. And actually, an interestingly, interesting thing about it was there's a lot of problems that are going to come from the church having temporal land, because when the church gets too involved in temporal things, it often can get distracted. But the reason behind it is actually a pretty solid one, is it's to guarantee the independence of the church. That if the Pope has his own land, he cannot be manipulated the way that the bishops in the East are. And that's actually why the church is going to, with a vice-like grip, hold on to the papal states all the way until the the end of the 1800s and is going to... um, why even having the Vatican State today with the deal that the papacy made with Mussolini and actually even just getting that was important because it is to guarantee the independence of the church. 
I mean, and actually, as a little spoiler alert, of in the spring, we're going to do a whole other series on church social doctrine. But why, this is the whole reason why the church has maintained the right of private property so fiercely throughout all history, is because you cannot have liberty without private property. And likewise, the church could not have liberty without its own domain. Um, so with the papal states. Now, but anyway, Charlemagne and the emperor did not get along. And the part of this is, particularly when Charlemagne gets crowned the new emperor of the West, that the emperor in the East was like, excuse me, I thought I am the emperor. Um, this is not cool. And, but the thing is, the emperor in the East, he has no influence. Charlemagne was actually the more powerful of the two at the time. And the pope is not stupid enough to anger the emperor in his own backyard when the one in the East is really not that relevant to him. And so um, that's why he, it's really interesting in the correspondences between the emperor and Charlemagne that the emperor, when talking about, or sorry, Charlemagne, not the emperor, sorry, the pope and Charlemagne, pope and Charlemagne, their correspondence, that the pope, when writing Charlemagne and talking about the council of Second Nicaea, he never mentions that he was actually sending his own representatives there because he doesn't want Charlemagne to know that he's getting too buddy-buddy with the emperor in the east. So that Charlemagne actually never even knows that this is an ecumenical council, or supposed to be. He just keep, always refers to it as the synod in the east because he had no idea that the pope actually had anything to do with it. And part of the problem was the, the misunderstanding, and this is why language is so important, was that when the documents from Second Nicaea showed up in the Frankish Empire, that there was a lot of great scholars in Charlemagne's court. That this was the, the heart of what's called the Carolingian Renaissance, where you had uh, a great sort of boom in learning going on there that was actually outstripping the learning that was going on in the East at the time. But the documents that got sent of the, what had been declared at Second Nicaea, they got sent a mistranslation. So when it showed up, the translation that showed up at Charlemagne's court said that when it comes time for images, we give them latria. And their bishop's like, no, this is complete heresy. You can't worship images. Um, so they actually ended up having a council in the West, uh, the Council of Frankfurt, it's not an ecumenical council, but condemning the mistranslation of Second Nicaea where they very clearly go through, it's like, no, of course we don't give Latria to images, those silly people in the East that would dare to say such a thing. Um, but part of what really see about this at this time, though, that mistranslation is the, that sort of, this is in many ways the beginning of the roots of that schism of East and West, that there is really developing a true sort of misunderstanding and suspicion of the east to the west and vice versa, that the, the cultures are becoming more and more separate, that the churches are becoming more and more separate at this time, that the unified Christendom really is starting to break down um, when you get into 800. And, and I think that's just in many ways a good example of, of, of seeing that breakdown. So, um, but anyway, Second Nicaea, the Seventh Ecumenical Council, and the last ecumenical council that is universally accepted 
as a true ecumenical council of our, both the Eastern Orthodox as well as the Catholics. And actually, the Anglicans accept all seven of the first seven ecumenical councils. Um, a lot of Protestants only accept the first five, and some accept none. Um, but the first seven are the ones that are usually considered like the universally accepted as infallible by both Eastern Orthodox as well as Catholics. Now, the East hasn't had, because since they're going to break off that not long after this, they're not going to be part of the rest of the ecumenical councils. Um, though, interestingly, somehow the page. Bartholomew, the Patriarch of Constantinople, is trying to call an Eastern Orthodox Ecumenical Council this year, um, or 2016, sorry, next year, the first one since Second Nicaea. I don't know how that's possible, seeing that they don't, it's not possible, but they think they're going to next year. Um, but it'll be a synod, because if the Pope doesn't promulgate it, it doesn't really count. Now, any questions? Anyone have anything they want to add? Dan, Dan. All right, I guess we can close there. Um, well, anyway, next week we'll start to get into the what well, their ecumenical councils, but it'll be post schism, and the history of the schism is a whole nother, a whole nother history that's worth reading about. How the heretic Photius is going to almost single-handedly bring the East out of communion to this very day. I don't know. It hasn't gotten that far in the planning yet. Because I wonder, though, I, I don't know. Do we know of anything that would, that would say how this could continue going any farther? Or is it still, you know, we're just easier, we're sweeter? I don't know. I honestly don't know. Yeah. twice. Great. I found this in the podium. All right. We can end in prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
God our Father, you sent your Son into the world to be its true light. Pour out the Holy Spirit you promised us to sow the truth in men's hearts and awaken them the obedience of faith. May all men be born again to new life and baptism and so enter the fellowship of your one holy church through our Lord Jesus Christ, your Son, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.